Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 132. On today's show, we talk about a Roman pomerium marker, a 4,000-year-old city in Iraq, and a reanalysis of skeletons from a Pleistocene-era graveyard. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. Rachel, how's the fieldwork going? It's going. It's going quickly. <laughs> it's almost done. <laughs> By the time you hear this, it probably will be done. One can hope. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Might be some cleanup. Maybe. There's always cleanup, right? As with all projects, there's going to be months of work after that. Yeah. So, yeah. But less because we're recording digitally. So there you go. True story. All right. So we are recording outside again because we were up in our project area in Nevada and it's a little bit windy. I can hear the tent flapping around. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't rain or thunder like it did last night about this time and uh, <laughs> we'll be good. So we also have, as we did last week, our guest co-host, Paul Zimmerman from the Architect Podcast. Yeah, also hoping that it's not going to rain because <laughs> last night's rain ruined my dinner plans. And if it ruins my dinner plans again, I'll be really, really upset because yeah. this is my last good chance to grill something. Yeah. That's right. Unless the project goes long. That's right. Right. Yeah. So more than, I, more than likely, though, you're finishing up your first project here in the Gray Basin and mm -hmm. uh, headed back home at uh, in a few days. Yeah. Yeah. How's it been? It's been great. It's been yeah. a good learning experience, a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Just great to be back in the field. It's totally different than archaeology <laughs> I've done before, except for survey is just generally similar, mm -hmm. but the materials, yeah. everything is, is new, and that's great. It's, it's fun nice. to learn something new. Well, there you go. Hopefully, uh, if it all works out, we can have you back next year because we're going to be here at the same time. Fingers crossed. <laughs> in the same, same area. time, same place. <laughs> that's right. So... Anyway, we've got three news articles that our fine producer found for us this week. And the first one is on Rome. And it was actually found in archeonews.net. We'll have links to all these in the show notes, so I'm not going to bother spelling them. But uh, take a look in your whatever podcast player you're using, and the notes are probably right there. And you can click on them, and most of them will just open a browser or open right there and show you the article. So don't do it while you're driving. Anyway... This one is called Ancient Rome's City Borders Were Discovered in a Rare Stone. So I had to kind of take a look, second look at that uh, article. I was like, what do you mean the borders were found? Yeah, the title yeah. is is weird. It took me a second to understand what they were talking about, too. Yeah, um, I mean, the basic... The basic thing here is, and we'll get into some of the dates and stuff like that, but the basic thing here is that... Uh, Rome had, you know, their city limits that that basically 
differentiated between the city limits and like the rural limits, right? right? Mm-hmm. And there was this space in between where you basically weren't allowed to be, there weren't allowed to be any weapons and stuff like that. Hmm. And it was kind of like a, I don't know, kind of like a safe zone. We'll talk about that in a little, in a little bit. I got it down in my notes here. It's called the, the, the Palmarium. And mm-hmm. uh, they haven't found too many of these stones that actually, I guess it probably says on there, I don't know if I wrote down what it says in Latin because I can see it, but I can't read the Latin. But it basically says, you know, this is the city limit of the city of Rome. It's like mm-hmm. those signs you see leaving town. Yeah. Right. Say, this is city limits. Yeah. 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 And it's like the Romans. Everything is very legalese. <laughs> and yes. so they... Uh, yeah. Lots of rules, and they make sure everybody knows mm-hmm. the rules. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. and I guess the last one that was found was over uh, close to 100 years ago. Oh, really? So, yeah. Huh. Yeah, and the cool thing is this was found on a CRM project, so it's found during excavations for a new sewage system, which I mentioned in Rome, you just, like, you can't drop a shovel in the ground without finding ancient Roman artifacts. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, anyway, this is from the reign of Emperor Claudius in 49 AD, so over 2,000 years ago, Mm -hmm. and it was found beneath Emperor Augustus's newly renovated tomb just off Rome's Via del Corso. So... Yeah, I think the uh, the headline, the ancient borders were discovered in a rare stone. I think it's <laughs> confirmed via, via the discovery of this yeah. stone. You think yeah. they really yeah. get the idea across a little more. That but. sounds much more accurate to me because I think they knew where the borders <laughs> were. Rome's been studied Roughly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and if they found more of these, which it says they have, it says 10 other stones of this kind have been found. Now, Rome is a big city even back then. Yeah. But, and with only 10 found, even if you... I mean, if you know where all those were, presumably they were found, I don't know, I guess you don't need to presume this, but presumably they were found where they were placed or close to it. So mm-hmm. you could kind of infer with those 10 points what the boundaries at that time would mm-hmm. have been. Mm-hmm. Because maybe maybe that wasn't, maybe that was well documented, but, you know, maybe we haven't found that yet or maybe it burned up and, you know, or something like that. So I don't really know. Well, I imagine it's not like a perfect circle or oval sure. or whatever. Yeah. So finding these stones will help you get the like minute details and map and shape mm-hmm. of the the original, you know, city city limits, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah. that's just a guess because I don't really know much about it. Correlated to other topographic, geographic features, yeah. Um, yeah. other architecture and so on. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure paintings and stuff. I and mean, there's a wall too. You know, the whole city was walled. Right. Yeah. So, yep. you know, that there should be evidence of that uh, at the same time. So I'm kind of curious how these were. I read up a little bit on Pomeria uh, after this mm-hmm. to try to get a sense of it because I thought that the, that the city wall defined the city, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it sounds like these stones define the city, but the name of the of Pomeria is a, a corruption of along the wall. Okay. Uh, so, so I'm wondering what these yeah. <laughs> stones are doing that the wall isn't. Yeah. Maybe this is just what they, you know, the wall is one thing, but then they've got somebody, there's no real indication of how big this is. Um, I guess it, it's, it actually is pretty big. It's sitting, yeah. I think, behind the um, mayor of Rome in one oh, of the pictures. Yeah. But yeah, it looks like it's over a meter long. Yeah. yeah. Pretty good size. Probably wasn't super light, but they had no. plenty of slaves to move it for them. So <laughs> it's possible that they were like scratching this out, you know, pecking it away and etching the, the words into it, independent of the wall. You know, the wall's being built. I mean, I'm thinking, why don't they just, like, peck this into the wall? But maybe they, I mean, they're Rome. They have to be special. So maybe it was a separate, like, pillar that was, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, from what I gather, it's a separate monument, kind yeah. of like a, a mile mm-hmm. marker, which is something that we know about, you know, much mm-hmm. more commonly from, well, we 
meaning somebody like me who doesn't know a whole hell of a lot about classical archaeology. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but I do know about mile markers. Uh, and yeah. the Pomeria seem to be the same sort of thing. It's a marker, but I'm wondering how it correlates, how tightly it, it correlates, where it's placed in relationship to that wall. Yeah, how? what was the standard measurement between markers? How often did they want to have, you know, how, yeah. how far were they spaced, things like that? Yeah, and was the whole point to just warn people of the fact that they were entering space that was controlled by Rome, essentially? Is that... Yeah, well, it's not just controlled by Rome, but special legal status okay. space okay. that's differentiated from other spaces that are also controlled by Rome. Yeah, because yeah, Rome controlled a lot of space. Yeah, so. and even yeah. within their, yeah. their city, there's the city proper, which is inside uh-huh. the, this pomerium, and then there's other parts of the city that are important, but because of the rules, they have to be carved off differently mm-hmm. in terms of like who can enter it, what status they have when they enter it, mm-hmm. whether they can have weapons. That would seem to be a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it says it has a, it was a religious, like the, the Palmarium was a religious, military, and political boundary defining mm-hmm. the limit of the city. So from a tax standpoint, from a, mm. you know, who's your politician standpoint, you know, all those kinds of things. Right. This would have defined that limit. You yeah. know, you're outside the city officially right here in Rome of all places would have wanted you to know exactly when you're outside the city, because I'm sure that if you like broke some law or infraction, it really mattered where you were. I yeah. Mean, yeah. They're no different than we are really today. Yeah. yeah. You know? So, I mean, most of our modern you know, politics and economics and civil structures based on Roman. Yeah, to some extent, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, at least based on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the reason why I dove into the the Pomeria a little bit, even though I'm still very hazy on what they were specifically, is mm-hmm. prohibition against weapons inside it reminded me something that I've seen in Arabia, mm-hmm. uh, especially in South Arabia. You have this the notion of this these towns. They're usually market centers. Sometimes they're religious centers, mm-hmm. but they're houtas. They're, they're special places. Tribal grievances, weapons, so on, are all left outside uh, yeah. so that people can conduct business, mm-hmm. religious matters, whatever, within it without the fear of violence. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a city, but it's a city with its own special rules. And so it right. reminded me of that. I don't think it's the same thing, but, uh, that makes but sense. It kind of, it's similar. And I'm sure there's a similar thing in plenty of other cultures as well. Yeah, a lot of, I mean, we do this today, but a lot of big city-state areas have used religion in a number of ways, right? Mm -hmm. And this says it's a consecrated piece of land along the city walls. And like you said, no weapons, but also no farming. You can't live there, no building. It's basically just an open piece of land that surrounds the city. Now, this could have been seen as like a, you know, some sort of... I don't know, religious even buffer that is, like they said, consecrated land. People don't want to go in there. And they could have used that in religious terms to keep the fear in people. But really, it was probably, uh, you know, a good military boundary, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah. people can't just march up to your walls. And well, they can, but <laughs> the, they're making a statement when they do that. Um, well, more importantly, they can't like store a bunch of arms right outside the walls. Yeah. Well, they're not supposed to. I'm sure they could do it in secret if they could find a way. But the idea is you can't have a, a whole storage of a bunch of things that could yeah. you could attack the city with or whatever. And you're not going to build a house right up against the wall and tunnel underneath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. You're going to have to tunnel from further away. The protection factor kind of makes sense when you think yeah, about totally. it like that. Yeah, I'm sure so. it's multi multiple reasons why yeah. these existed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a moat, right? Like from medieval, <laughs> medieval times. It's a legal moat. Yeah, yeah. But, but the Romans were strong enough that they didn't have to build a moat. <laughs> <laughs> to keep people out, they could just put up a a really imposing piece of stone that says 
don't yeah. come in here. <laughs> I'm sure for every one of these, there were a hundred Roman soldiers standing right next to it. Well, yeah, know, possible all, at all times. Possible. Yeah, I think so. they had a pretty pretty good hold on their population. But right, yeah. Right. Yeah, again, I said it. there's only been 10 others found of this kind, but if I feel like if we had more knowledge of the city limits of Rome at that time, and I say at that time because, I mean, as, as those fluctuated and changed, are there rings of these as Rome got bigger and then, hmm. you know, coming in as Rome, you know, contracted a bit uh, over the years? Oh, I don't know. Romans were pretty smart. They probably just picked it up and moved it maybe if they needed to like yeah. why why waste the effort of creating a whole new one yeah and if there was one out there that would be a different legal boundary and there could be confusion yeah. too so maybe they did move them yeah but no uh, idea. yeah anyway it would have been cool to see i don't know if anybody's thoroughly studied this or if they've just been found accidentally but it seems like with enough knowledge of the past and you know rome at that time you could probably kind of find the rest if you wanted yeah, to Yeah, probably if they haven't been dug up and they're sitting well it sounds else. like the rest of rome has grown up around these things oh, I'm sure like, like modern rome right. yeah, 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 yeah so like the chances of finding them intact they're under parking lots exactly like yeah. they might be there but yeah who knows well every roman citizen listening to this just go down <laughs> into your basement <laughs> dig around a little bit yeah see what you find yeah well, talk talk not. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Wait, weren't you just reading an article about somebody who found like a, a bath under their house? Yeah, it was like a 2,000 year old like steps leading down to like this Roman bath. Yeah. Not Roman. It was, uh, but it was like a bath area. Yeah. Uh, there's a picture of it in the, uh, <laughs> if you're listening to this in real time, it is in the newsletter that released from the APN yeah. on Friday. Which is really released. cool. I would love yeah. to live in a city old enough that you could just like be doing some construction on your house, some remodeling mm. and like, you know, find an ancient bath under there. <laughs> MBD. I know. I'm a little sad that if we do any renovations to RV, the only thing we could potentially find is like a note from some sad RV construction guy that left it in the walls saying, <laughs> right. I don't want to work here anymore. Oh, and that. And yeah. that. But definitely. Probably Definitely a colony there. of ants. <laughs> Definitely those. Lots of vermin. Yeah. We're like a traveling ecosystem, really. Uh, it's kind of gross. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's not think about that too hard. Right. Wow. So, <laughs> that went downhill, <laughs> downhill real fast. That did go downhill real fast. So, All right. Well, that was a 2,000-year-old marker in Rome. Let's double that and head to Iraq. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 132. And we are moving down to Iraq. And this one... 
is pretty cool. The site was found by a group of Russian archaeologists, and it's actually the article that our producer found is from almonitor.com. Yeah, so Al Monitor is an American-based, I think, uh, Middle Eastern news mm. magazine. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I think it's all online now. I don't know if they have a paper version. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That said, this article seemed like it was a translation of about a bunch of different ones. <laughs> yeah, it was a little confused. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there was definitely some some language issues in here. Mm-hmm. And then the picture on the front, too, it's a little misleading. Very misleading. Very misleading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just found, they they did a Google image search and said, well, this was mentioned. Let's put that up there. Yes, and so what they show on the image here is the Great Ziggurat from the site of Ur, mm-hmm. which is a site near the one that was discovered that they discussed yeah. in the article, Yeah, but not the same one. Okay, I was confused about how those were related. Yeah, they so. mentioned a lot of sites that aren't... <laughs> Aren't the site that, that are, they're talking about, and they mention a lot of time one. periods that aren't the time period they're talking about. Oh. We're just like name dropping the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. That's what's I happening. I feel like we just need to change this podcast to like critique of media. That's kind of what we do, though. That is kind of what we do because they do they just do not do a good job sometimes. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Before we get too critical, though, mm-hmm. one thing that I really did like about this, and mm-hmm. this shows the way that this news organization approaches their collection of the news, they spoke to a lot of Iraqi archaeologists mm-hmm. that oh, are quoted in here. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. that's a very good thing in my book. Yeah, yeah for, for sure. sure. Okay. Well, this was just, according to the article, this came out July 9th, but it was discovered June 24th, so pretty fresh that's information. Brand new. Which is probably why, I mean, they said discovered June 24th, not that's when they read the paper. Mm-hmm. So there probably hasn't been a paper, and there won't be one for six months to a year. Yeah, it mm-hmm. didn't seem like there was a paper out yet. It looks yeah. like this was a news uh, press release. Yep. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, and it includes a video, which basically shows, again, a bunch of pictures and things like that, and repeats a lot of stuff from the uh, article, but it gives you a, a nice idea of what the article says if you don't have time to read it. But anyway, Russian archaeological archaeological team, uh, this is a 4,000-year-old sediment, and Paul, you might have to help with the pronunciation if you can, but found in the how does that pronounce? Dikar? Dikar. Dikar? Dikar. And governorate. I'd never even heard that term before. A lot of countries in the Middle East are divided into governorates. They're basically okay. like states are in the U.S. Mm. or counties are within a state. Okay. It's provi- provinces within the... Uh, Got it. Gotcha. The, the Found an area called Tel al-Duhala, where more than 1,200 archaeological sites are, including... As the only picture on the top that they have here is uh, the Great Ziggurat of Ur. Yeah, okay. So Tel al-Dahela would be a different site that is not... <laughs> not where this site where is. This, where this, this is where the confusion Ur, came in. Tel okay. yeah. Now, they yeah. said the area called Tel... Uh, yeah, I think that's a mistranslation. Is it really? Confusion okay. by the yeah. writer. I was wondering about that. Because a Tel is a hill, right? Yeah. It's yeah. a man-made mm-hmm. hill. Right. Okay. Anyway, uh, so let's see what... I'm just going to keep reading some of the quotes I brought out of here. <laughs> And we'll have Paul shoot him down and tell us what they really So <laughs> This is perfect. So the city that they found was an urban settlement located on the banks of a water course and could have been the capital of a state founded following the political app political collapse at the end of the Babylonian area in the middle of the second millennium BC. That sounds like a lot of a, it sounds like a lot that they found and a lot of determination of stuff from something that was found two weeks ago. Yeah, I'm not sure yeah. how they think it's the capital, maybe by the size of the site. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know about the distribution of sites from this time period. The Babylonian era, there are a couple of Babylonian, but this is talking about the old Babylonian. And so you would know of Hammurabi, mm-hmm. the Codex Hammurabi. Right. Mm-hmm. He lived about 1800 BCE. Okay. Okay. So this would be at the end of the period that uh, he was one of the kings of. Mm-hmm. And so, 
that would put us squarely in the middle of the second millennium mm. BCE. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's real interesting. I mean, they're calling this a city. Yeah. Like they found a city. And one of the other cool things, let me jump down to where this is. Discovery introduces the world to the one of the Sumerian cities overlooking the seaports. Most cities used to have a view of the seaport above the sea, but have mm. turned today into a vast desert because they're further inland now. Uh, yeah. right. and, and that's happened. But I'm wondering, man... I mean, how many cities over there are left to remain discovered? They said a city indicating many buildings, you know, maybe a wall, stuff like that. Like, mm -hmm. what actually did they discover, I wonder? And and how is this a new discovery? Yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen maps Yeah, to know mm -hmm. exactly where the site was and to see what exactly it looked like. Sure. Yeah. Well, and it makes me wonder, too, because white archaeologists, and I'm going to go ahead and group the Russians into that mm -hmm. category, show up to an area and be like, look what we discovered. Yeah. But the locals, the people who live there on that land have known it was there all along. Right. It's just that when it's part of your landscape, you don't necessarily think of it as something to study right. or something now, to learn about. Within the Iraqi context, part of what discovery means isn't that, hey, look, here's this tell we didn't know about. Uh -huh. Everybody knew that there was a tell there. Right. Hey, we dug into it. Yeah. And we start to know what ancient city it was that mm -hmm. we had not previously identified. Which makes sense. Right. The, the, so it's, so it's, it's got a slightly different take on discovery. And that's, mm -hmm. again, that's why I'm pleased that they had so many Iraqi mm -hmm. archaeologists quoted in this. Yeah, Because sure. it, it lends credence to it, not just being, like you were saying, uh, white Europeans going, hey, look what we found, yeah. to yeah. a project that's involving a bunch of different people saying, we knew there was something here. What we found is specifically, or more specifically, what it is. Right. You know, yeah, it's a site sense. dating to this time period. It's mm -hmm. a very large site. Therefore, we think that it's an important site. Therefore, we think it might be the capital city of Still not sure which kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they haven't even mentioned a name yet. No, that they found anything well, indicating what it is. It must be too early to truly have like dates or anything. They right? have writing. They expect to find yeah. cuneiform documents in oh, an yeah, undisturbed yeah. context. Yeah. They say, yeah, they, and they can read that. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so by that time period, fairly easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. You know, again, I'm going back to what was discovered, and I just can't imagine the monumental. You know, we get we get happy when we, uh, you know, we're excited when we find a hundred phlegolithic scatter. Like, look what we found. It's enormous. <laughs> but not only did these guys find an entire city, but it says they also discovered an ancient port and remains of a temple wall four meters wide. Right. I thought it was interesting to mention in the same sentence the temple wall that was four meters wide, because if mm -hmm. you found an entire city in a port, that seems like you're kind of burying the lead a little bit. Like, <laughs> like what did you find that yes. indicates this is a city and a port right. if you're mentioning a single wall? Right. Well, yeah, but a four meter wide wall, that's like, that's heavy duty right there. Yeah, yeah, but but if you found a city in a port, you probably found 400 other one meter wide walls. That seems like more important to me, you know. For determining what the city is, finding yeah. a, a monumental building like that with four meter yeah. wide walls, that tells you that this is an important center. Right. And that's probably what they're basing the idea that this might be a capital city. Yeah. Um, I think that's a bit of a stretch, but I mm -hmm. will say that every major capital city has temples that have Big honk and mud brick walls. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine a lot of cities of almost any size probably have big temples. I mean, it was kind of a big focus. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And most yeah. of the cities, I mean, by Hammurabi's time, it's not all broken up into city-states. Mm -hmm. But there is this very, like, city focus, even through there, where the cities are semi-independent. Mm. Right? They have their own gods. 
their own religious structures that administer the temple. The temple administers a lot of the mm-hmm. lands. You know, by this time period, there are legitimate uh, kingdoms, definitely, that span multiple cities, but there also are empires. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we've already gone through the Akkadian Empire. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. happened 500 years prior to, to Hammurabi. Right. Well, another interesting thing that was pulled out of this article is, uh, well, first off, this area is commonly known as the cradle of civilization because archaeology archaeology was invented here. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it it was. (laughs) It may well have been. They had cities 12,000 years ago, so I'm sure 8,000 years ago they were studying them going, what is this? The ancestor of the first archaeologist is definitely from there. Absolutely. (laughs) Assyrian and Babylonian kings who are excavating. Yeah. Oh, sure. Ancient sites yeah. to show that they rebuilt the temple on the exact plan right. of the same right. s- temple that was there 2,000 years <laughs> prior because they know about it because yep. they have the documents. Yep. So, yeah. So, <laughs> while it wasn't wrong, what I meant to say was <laughs> the article also mentions that the first development of agriculture using silt uh, in Mesopotamia. Now, they didn't say the first development of agriculture using silt anywhere, they said using silt in Mesopotamia, was also discovered. It says that uh, um, the site contains remains of the material from the period that preceded the emergence of the Sumerian civilization. Right. And so this is one of the points where this article is a little confusing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely. what they're talking about is 4,000, 5,000 BCE. So well earlier than this site. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I totally believe that they have things there because Mm -hmm. some of the earliest Sumerian sites and pre-Sumerian sites are in the same province, Mm -hmm. right? In the same governorate. So like Mm -hmm. uh, Ubaid, which gives its name to the Ubaid period, which is the first, I suspect they're probably proto-Sumerians, but that's where we start to see the gelling of all the different features that we associate with high Sumerian culture. Um, So that's in the same area. So Mm -hmm. I'm not at all surprised they found that, but I don't know how those... Like, how are they related? Exactly. Spatially and... Yeah. yeah. I know temporally because I know this. Yeah. This is material I've studied. But they don't explain that in the article. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly they don't tell us how they relate spatially. That's probably one of the downsides of writing a big article like this where they clearly had a press release and maybe talked to a handful of archaeologists and got, like, this bit of information and that bit of information and then just sort of, like cobbled it all together. Yeah, 100%. I'm sure that's what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, and like most archaeological digs, you don't find just like the one thing that you're looking for. Like you said, this evidence, you know, predates the city that they found. But also, they mentioned some other things they found from different time periods. Um, They found oxidized arrowheads, traces of tandoor stoves, and clay camel statues dating to the early Iron Age. So lots of different things mm-hmm. found on this site, which you right. would expect of this area that's been inhabited for yeah, many, many tens of thousands of years. Yeah, like lumping all that together, it's like, well, how do you split these out by age and yeah. group of people? And mm-hmm. it's just, again, it's just like a conglomeration of a bunch of information, right. but not not specifics on any one bit of it. Yeah, right. I'd really so, love to see the, the development uh, of the site stratigraphy in this you know look at the paper and see how they excavated did they do a few test units that were you know several meters deep did mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. you know what did they what did they do so i suspect from what i know about mesopotamian archaeology what they did is they had a survey of the region mm. and that's what they're reporting mm. all this wide variability from that the, makes the, sense you know from 5000 bce yeah. right up until you know I don't know, Iron Age, so it could be the first, it could be even like as late as the first yeah. century BC. Sure. That would explain this wide range of stuff and time period and yeah, everything. and then they did excavations on the tell, and that's what they're focusing on. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the way the article's written, they're, they're telling us everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, well, any other thoughts on this site? 
cool. I mean, yeah, yeah very neat. Uh, I have a friend that uh, that's working at another site in the area, and uh, and also found honking big temple. <laughs> yeah, and uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of interesting work. He's in Iraqi, and so there's a lot of interesting work that's going on there. And again, say it the third time, I'm very pleased that Iraqis themselves mm-hmm. are uh, are being so closely involved in the work in their own country. Yep. Well, and I'm glad we're talking about an article like this because honestly, to me, and I'm sure most Americans. Iraq, because of the media and what's happened there, always seems like a pretty unstable place. And I'm, you know, initially I was, I shouldn't have been, but I was shocked that people outside of Iraq were even doing archaeology there. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know that that was even, they were even getting permits for that, allowing people in, doing that mm-hmm. kind of thing, because it mm-hmm. always seems so unstable. Right. Most American projects in Iraq now are happening in the north, in Iraqi Kurdistan. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the deep south, there have been a couple American projects, and there have been, I think, Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I've forgotten who all is working. Probably a French or German project, maybe Dutch. Mm-hmm. But, sure. Um, Apparently are they also uh, Russians? Russians. There Do you, you know? Are they required to work with local people? Because from my time with per, in Peru, like we were required to work with oh, local yeah. Peruvian archaeologists. Yeah, so yeah, they okay, are. that's they good. Are. That's mm-hmm. really good to get the the local. It is. It's just what happens when it comes to publication and dissemination mm-hmm. of information. Yeah, uh, it tends to be the the European and American archaeologists that get the get the, the credit. Yeah, get the credit. And yeah, such. yeah. Was yeah. it Russia that was down there or the Russian Archaeological Committee? <laughs> Is it too soon? That's an Olympics joke. <laughs> Sorry, Russia. Uh, <laughs> I mean, didn't that happen like four years ago now? Uh, but they're Longer, calling themselves maybe? the ROC now. Well, so. they still are because yeah. they're still in trouble. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry, Russians. <laughs> All right. So we are going to keep traveling back in time to 13,000 years ago. We're going to do that on the other side of the break. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 132. And as promised, we are... 13,000 years into the past, so further than before. We'll just keep marching back in time with this uh, episode today. Perfect. This one is one of those articles that I guess, you know, archaeologists like to say stuff, and then it gets refuted like decades later or something like that, when more information is found or someone actually studies it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is one of those things. And it it, kind of, for people not in the know, I feel like it would kind of throw into question everything we know because if, if you read it in a textbook you tend to believe it if you you know see it in a paper you tend to believe it but it's only true until something else comes along to either disprove it or more prove it mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. so you got to kind of look at all the articles that support something and all the evidence that supports something yeah that's why scientifically so. speaking it's really hard to create a law right most things are theories right. most everything yeah. is theory is a theory because you can't be 100% all the time right. and it's the same with archaeology well, this one, as I click away from the ad I tried to get away from, oh, that's just going to keep on. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of ads in this article. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of ads. Like, a lot yeah. of ads. Warning, yeah. it goes to the, this article that we've got linked is from the Daily Mail, yes. which is notoriously <laughs> bad British tabloid. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. if I had hair, and I'm uh, an absolute cue ball, it would have <laughs> all been standing up on air on end when I first saw it. Yeah, I, but it wasn't actually bad. No, I said the, the same ads. thing. I said the same thing. But to their credit, they link to a Nature article yes. 
in Nature's yes. Scientific Reports, and you can download the whole PDF. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's all open source. So if you want to, it's a pretty decent summary of the article here, which is why we're going to go ahead and link to this Daily Mail article. Mm-hmm. So, but you're right. I normally wouldn't even consider yeah. put the other one in the link to, in the uh, well, show. Oh yeah, they'll both yeah. be in there. Yeah, yeah they'll both yeah, be in there. You'll be sure. able to see the Daily Mail one and then the Nature um, Reports article or Scientific Reports. Sorry, the Scientific Reports one. If you want to search for it, it's called New Insights on Interpersonal Violence in the Late Pleistocene. Based on the Nile Valley Cemetery of Jebel Sahaba. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, the thing that we're talking about here, again, this is 13,000 years old. The site was discovered in 19, or excavated, I should say, discovered. It was a cemetery discovered in 1965 on the east bank of the Nile, containing at least 61 individuals dating back to about 11,000 uh, BCE. And half of them died from inflicted wounds, or so they could tell mm-hmm. from that. Mm-hmm. The people of the time, the scientists of the time, the 1960s time. Of the yes. 1960s time. Yeah. Now, the article says, you know, evidence of the first race war was actually something else. They never actually said race war in the article. They said, uh, what did they say? Originally thought to be the earliest known example of communal violence between groups. Right. And yeah. I'm, again, not sure how they thought that. We'd have to read the original article. Yeah, going probably. from communal violence between groups to race war. Yeah, why that's, would that like, be that's a, that's then, a leap. Given that it was the Daily Mail, that that's uh, why I just yeah. like, yeah. oh, this is going to be a slog. Yeah. Well, and we it turned all know, out really interesting yeah. it said, though. Yeah. We all know that you can't determine race from skeletal remains anyway. Yes. Yeah, I mean, so, it's a social construct anyhow. Yeah, yeah, totally. Although in the 60s, they probably thought they still could, <laughs> right? So if they're making judgments back, the 1960s judgments, yeah. Yeah. maybe. But it yeah. would presume that you'd have an analogous cemetery of... Of the other side, the right? Other side, yeah, right? totally. Yeah. yeah, that is a good point, because yeah. they mentioned like the one cemetery yeah. that they're discussing here. So, yeah. Um, anyway, so this was uh, what they called an ancient battleground in Sudan. Uh, again, thought to be the first race war. Not try, not quite true. No. Um, but what it turns okay. out, and, and this is really cool from an, a reanalysis of the skeletal evidence, it actually it looks like this was actually just a series of conflicts, maybe right. close in time because they're all mm-hmm. buried in the same cemetery mm-hmm. uh, and they're all buried right there. But the way they can tell that is they looked at the healed trauma on some of those. Now, if mm-hmm. this were all happened at once and it was one huge battle, th- nothing would have healed, yeah. right? It, they would have just died, and then the process kind of stops right there. Right. Bo- yeah. Bones heal. So you get stabbed, you get you get mm-hmm. chopped, whatever. Yeah. The bone will heal around it. You, you break a leg. Right. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, and they can see that ossiologically. And what? that's what the reanalysis did. It looked very closely yeah. using new tools at the uh, at the skeletons that were recovered from this. Exactly. The one thing I don't remember noticing is that they talk about the breakdown of sex. Was it more men, more women? I didn't even see that mentioned. Children. You know, I, I read the intro conclusion and I skimmed the rest of the uh, of yeah. the actual article. And I don't recall that they did. There yeah. were children as young as four. I remember that. Stood okay. Out. Hmm. It would be interesting to know because if these are this is such a violent interaction that caused a lot of these deaths, it would be interested to know the the makeup of the the victims. Yeah, and that's if I mean race war is not the right term, but if it was attempting to wipe out an entire mm-hmm. opposing community, you would expect you'd find. Equal Every, numbers of everybody, men, right. women, old, yeah. young. Yep. Yeah. yeah. But if it was a battle, if it was ongoing battles that were happening continuously, then I would think you would see the warriors, more men, given, well, but that depends on the makeup of the society and yeah. who the warriors also were. It depends but, on the lethality of the, uh, of the tools they're using, the yeah. weapons they're using. Yeah, but yeah, true. The reanalysis identified 106 previously undocumented lesions and traumas, mm. uh, and they were able to distinguish between projectile point injuries from 
arrows and spears from trauma related to close combat. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I imagine close combat trauma is a lot more slashing and crushing. Yep. Whereas yeah. spears and projectile points are going to be a lot more just like puncturing. going through your skull. <laughs> yeah, punctury. Yeah. yeah. Punctury. So, that's a word. Yeah. A lot more <laughs> yeah. Um, but that is one cool thing. They said at least half of the wounds were identified as puncture wounds caused by uh, projectile points, projectiles like arrows or spears, uh, which they say supports the theory that the attacks happened from a distance. Yeah, it makes yeah. it sound like people are being sniped at. Yeah, right, right. yeah, totally But, does. you know, every, I know this isn't a good source of, you know, historical data, but like every movie you see, you know, and every video <laughs> not game. not a good source Every movie all. I like, see listen, is a good source of historical know, right? data. In yeah. Braveheart. <laughs> listen, in Braveheart, that's not how they did it. But, no, but, but this would make sense. If they did have bow and arrow technology, everybody knows that, you know, if you have a bow and arrow or you have spears, you know that that has to have a longer range than your sword yeah. or your club or whatever mm-hmm. you have, right? Mm-hmm. So you are going to necessarily put those people behind. I mean, that's a common, oh, right. you know, soldiering. Like military t- tactic. Military tactic, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you're going to put those people in back because, you know, they have to travel lighter. They can't have all this armor and stuff on while they're trying mm-hmm. to wield a bow. Um, so they're going to be in the back and they are going to, you know, they're going to take some people out before they even get, and that's their whole point. They're going to take mm-hmm. some people out before the lines converge. Yeah. So if it was that kind of a battle, which I don't know there's any way we can tell that. All we have is a cemetery. We don't even have a battleground. Right. Or or the other side, presumably. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's uh, it's hard to say. I, I think we'd have to know a lot more about how far apart these people were in death. You know what I mean? Like, were they, yeah. did they all die at the same time? Did they, they didn't. They said that clearly. Yeah, they're but. saying 13,000 years ago, but was it 13,000 years and 100 years? Or well, was it 12,000? Oh, going do back they? to 18,000 BP. Oh. So, I... Yeah, who knows? That's a big range, That's a huge right? range, so. but you wouldn't probably be burying in a cemetery like this for 5,000 years, 61 people. That's that seems a, like a lot. Yes. That seems like And to even time. relate those people in, yeah. together, like that. So that I'm, I'm willing time. to believe that they're from basically... Same time period They're basically temporaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, okay. that's conjecture on my mm-hmm. part. Another thing I thought, I didn't read the, I skimmed like the abstract and some stuff from the original article, but they also say that, you know, while they found that this is probably a succession of violent episodes rather than one, they said probably exacerbated by climate change. What is going on with that comment? (laughs) Well, I mean, is climate change causing their hunting prospects to be less or yeah. are they competing over resources basically I mean, because of climate of change? Right. So my first reaction to that was that it was also, I mean, there are a lot of archaeologists that because of the current milieu and because we're, you know, probably experiencing, you know, <laughs> epic defining climate change right now. Right that are interpreting a lot of old conflict in terms of climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I generally roll my eyes at that, yeah. <laughs> though I'm definitely a believer in anthropogenic climate change right mm-hmm. now. Uh, projected into the past as an explanation, I usually roll my eyes because I'm thinking, uh, you're just latching onto something that's trendy. And that was my first reaction to this. But mm-hmm. when I was reading the article, I'm like, okay, I see what they're doing. They're mm-hmm. trying to narrow it into what's happening globally in the climate and I don't know how specifically they get to this area, but um, 
they build well, an argument that, that makes a little bit of sense. They say in general that the end of the Ice Age was causing essentially an environmental disaster because uh, the Earth wasn't right. prepared for it. You know, it had been in an Ice Age for too long, which caused atta- the attackers and the victims, presumably they weren't both attackers. They no. could have been. They could have um, been, though. You don't know. know like, it could have been two families been, yeah. that lived in the same area. Yeah. Yeah. and the McCoys. Yeah, are, <laughs> yeah totally. Montagues and the Capulets, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> so they were, um, they would have had a lot of stabbing. Yeah, a lot <laughs> of stabbing. A lot of stabby, stabby there. Um, but they said they, they caused them to live together in a smaller area. Right. Now, okay, I might believe that if you're talking about, like, you know, southern France or something like that. But mm-hmm. I don't know how much the... You know, like the Sudan or the Sahara Desert was was affected by global climate change and the end of the Pleistocene. I really don't know. And unlike the anthropogenic climate change that we're experiencing now, we're experiencing climate change in a way that is so rapid and fast that we can actually see it. Right. But back then, we're talking... You know, climate, climactic, and geological timescales. Where if they were experiencing climate change, they wouldn't have known it. They they probably wouldn't have known anything was different about the world from the time they were born to the time they were dead. But if you go back, maybe maybe five generations, there might be a difference. Maybe ten. I don't know. But yeah. in one generation with a bunch of people, I don't know if they would have known that. Well, which gets again to the question: How disparate in time are these these bodies? Yeah. In this this burial. Yeah. In this right. graveyard. So given that this was all found in one cemetery, kind of tells me, I mean, 13,000 years ago, I mean, I know we had, you know, pretty well-established civilizations, not quite city-states, but getting pretty darn close 13,000 years ago. And was that years ago or B.C.? No, 30 years ago. So, years, yeah. Uh, 11,000 B.C. So we're getting pretty close to, you know, getting some pretty well-established societies. But what did their cemeteries look like? You know, how did they bury their people? If you've got only 60, only 65 people tells me that that could have been a series, not to quote another movie, a series of unfortunate events, but, (laughs) you know, because if it were hundreds of people or thousands of people, that might be like a city's cemetery. Mm -hmm. Well, this is before, uh, to the best of my knowledge, any permanent settlements. Yeah. This is earlier than things like Gobekli Tepe. Right. Yeah, and I think it was saying that- Which isn't a permanent Yeah, yeah. No, I was just going to say that previously they only had like two or three individuals buried together, so that's why this was so special and different, is the number of individuals. Right. So that gets Minimum that, number of individuals, right? The like there other could really be more. Question here is why so many people buried in one spot? Yeah, you know? which I, I understand why in the sixties they would have assumed it was more of a mass yeah. death situation to have that many people from so long ago in one area. Yeah, and even if not, even if it's within a generation or two, it implies that this is a spot that's frequented by people. Yeah, and frequented sure. by yeah. people who are getting, you know shot with arrows a lot and (laughs) often just before they die then they get buried right there which makes me think that um, hey don't go by the cemetery you'll get shot (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'm not going over there everyone over there is dead (laughs) definitely not going near there definitely not so the interesting thing about this article for me is it really shows might show how archaeologists are so influenced by their their current yes. situation, right? Their current circumstances. Because the way I interpreted this was in 1965, when this was discovered, they called it the first race war. What was happening in 1965? Yeah. Oh, yes. Civil rights. Good point. Right? Yeah. Civil rights movement. So, like, that was happening, and then they call it the first race war. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're reanalyzing. We're also in the middle of the biggest, like, acknowledged climate crisis that the world has seen that we know of and what do they call it anyway that we caused (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) and what are they saying that it was influenced by climate change so i just i 
I wonder if in another 20, 40, 50 years, what archaeologists are going to look at this and interpret. And I feel that way about basically every archaeological site and everything, because we're always informed by what is happening currently yeah. For, yeah. for our culture and for us. That's no, a good you're point. absolutely right. Yeah, yeah I'm going to take this up. And uh, in 30 years, I'm going to call it the... The first Republican debacle that uh, <laughs> that we can identify. So bold yeah. of you both to think that there are going to be people around in thirty or fifty years. Oh, <laughs> True. oh we got a Debbie Downer over oh, here. Oh, <laughs> hey, I don't know where you're going to be, but I'm going to be, you know, well, fifty out. years from now. <laughs> I, well, I'm pretty sure I'll be in the cemetery. <laughs> no, you'll be you'll be in my iPad, uh, and I'll be in my RV. Uh, you know, we'll be. Oh, in the I RV. thought you were going to say cryogenic frozen somewhere probably well, I mean I'm I'm 50 in in four years and uh-huh. I've always said I've said for probably 30 years that I'm going to be cryogenically frozen at 50 and shot into space and that's actually getting closer to a possibility with you know the billionaires making that happen yeah. so um, yeah oh yeah I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if in four I'm, years I'm gonna that's see if, definitely gonna happen I'm sure Bezos is gonna let me buy on Amazon like cryogenically freezing my head and putting it up on uh, the penis rocket so. so that you can come back in like 50 or 100 years and reinterpret like 3,000 years and, and tell everybody how wrong their interpretations of our like current uh, sites not, are <laughs> I'm not coming back until another like species can awaken me so that's going to be the note on my on my device big yeah. big big words over back here back to your misanthropy from last session huh? <laughs> that's right oh man all right well again thanks to our producer for finding these uh, if there's anything you find and you want us to talk about it and, and put an archaeological lens on an article, then feel free to send it over Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or you can comment just about anywhere where you find this, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or wherever it happens to be. Or if you get the email, you can always just, like the APN newsletter, you can just reply yeah. to it. And just reply to it, and that comes right back to us, too. Yeah, and if you want to get the APN newsletter, you can uh, head over to our website. And if you haven't been there in a while, uh, arcpodnet.com. Just scroll up a little bit, and this annoying pop-up box shows up. <laughs> just put your email address in there, and then hit OK, and don't worry about it. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's how you do that. So, again, thanks a lot. Thanks, Paul, for joining us. Well, thanks for having me again. A lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And if you want to hear a couple live episodes of the Archaeotech podcast, then head over to the Archaeotech podcast and listen to Paul and I talk in the field about different things. And in fact, our next one, we have a guest and that's going to be interesting because Paul and I both have garbage internet. So <laughs> that should be real fun. Yeah. Archaeotech on garbage <laughs> oh internet. <my> <laughs> <laughs> so. Should be great. All right. We'll see everybody next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.